Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Jess Leahy. Her book, The Gift of Failure, came out in 2016. Today we're going to talk to her about how to apply the book's ideas to this moment, to pandemic parenting and at-home learning and living together (laughs) 24-7. Jess is here to solve all those problems, guys, so don't worry about it. (laughs) By the time this is done, you're going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Jess is an expert. Let me tell you about Jessica Leahy. She's a mom, a writer, and a teacher. She's taught grades from 6th to 12th. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. And she is the author of The New York Times smash bestseller, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Jessica lives in Vermont with her husband and her two sons. We're so excited to have you here. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me, ladies. And we know Jess in real life, so it's fun to have her on as well, just to catch up and chat. It's so much fun. I'm so excited. Yes, we've been wanting to do this for a long time. So I will say I read this book several years ago because we kind of know each other. And I was like, oh, I should read this book. And because everybody read this book. I mean, this is, (laughs) yes. And because everyone read this book. But I just revisited it because my kids are now 12 nine and eight. Oh, you are so in it. Yeah. When I originally read it, I was kind of like, "Mm, this seems scary. I'm going to probably ignore (laughs) this for a while. (laughs) But my most important takeaway from the new read is remembering, and I did not remember this, I have been trying to convince Amy to make this a Little House on the Prairie based podcast (laughs) where we just talk about Little House on the Prairie. Pretty much is already. Oh, I think that's brilliant. And where we just like talk about shirtless paw and the raccoon episode. And we just break down episodes of Little House on the Prairie because it's all I care about. Mm -hmm. And this book is basically about Little House on the Prairie. How did I not remember that? (laughs) Well, there are certain touchstone books, I think, for lots of people. And, And for me, there's this constant sort of when I'm trying to envision how to be the best, you know, whatever, best person, best parents. There are certain people I go back to. And the two most important books to me when I was little were the Little House on the Prairie books and a series of books called The All of a Kind Family. <laughs> oh, I can't believe you just said that. I just got such joy chills. <laughs> and so first of all, All of a Kind Family, like 
So the thing about Olive Cud Family is like, if I had my way, I would be doing that chapter where one of them, I can't remember which one, won't eat her food. So Ma, keep, the mother keeps putting the food out until it's all glutinous and sticky and gross. And finally she cries and eats her food and realizes how lucky she is as a human being and the world is brought to right again. And when was this set or when written? Oh, so Olive Cud, oh, so you don't know Olive Cud Family? I mean, I know about it because Margaret's talked about it, but I've never read them. <laughs> she knows about it because I'm obsessed with all of the kind family. Oh, I love them. Well, also, I didn't I had a couple of Jewish friends growing up, but I didn't have like I wasn't Jewish. And so I really wanted to understand like all this is where all my understanding of the Jewish holidays came from. Like I wanted a sukkah. I wanted like, you know, all of the stuff. This is where I learned about it anyway. So it's set in on the Lower East Side of New York in the early 1900s. And they have it's a bunch of girls. It's like little women, but Jewish in the Lower East Side. <laughs> yeah, it's just lovely. Yeah. Picture like the Tenement Museum. They're like living in downtown. And then Ma again is like firm yet loving. She's like, oh, you're having trouble doing your chores? <laughs> Let me hide buttons all about the parlor so that you can find the buttons while you dust. So that you'll dust. Well, and she's brilliant because not only does she do that, she understands that you can't hide the buttons every time, that after you do hide the buttons every time at first to get the kids excited about it, then you do it intermittently so that there's this intermittent reward. It's like she totally understood. Either that or dog training because it works with dog training. <laughs> <laughs> we do talk about that a lot too, dog can training. I, but can I ask, like a hundred years ago, like, were kids excited about buttons when they dusted the parlor? Like, was that ever possible? It was pennies, buttons, penny candy. So actually, the best episode or the episode, the best chapter of All of a Kind Family is the one where two of the girls share beds, of course, because, you know, Tenement, Lower East Side. By the way, go to the Tenement Museum on the Lower East Side. I heard they're hitting some financial troubles right now because of the pandemic, but it's really cool because you get to go and like be in a building that you can envision this family in. But the girls would share beds. And so two of the girls decided to take their penny money and go to the candy store and you were able to get a quarter of a penny's worth of candy and so the candies that they got they had this little strategy for how to make them last a long time and they ate them in their bed and it was a whole thing and I didn't share a bed with my sister but if I had I would have totally reenacted that scene so yes did not only were they excited about buttons they were excited about the amount of candy that a quarter of a penny could purchase Amy, the big news about today is that I am breaking up with you and starting a podcast with Jess Mahe, <laughs> where we only talk about Little House on the Prairie and all of a kind family all day long, every day. I don't think it's going to do as well as What Fresh Hell, but I'm going yeah. to be so spiritually fulfilled. But Jess, build us the bridge from Ma Ingalls and Ma All of a Kind family to the gift of failure. Well, essentially, for a long time, like my I wanted to be Lara, right? I mean, of course, duh, you want to live in a sod house. You want an ox to put its foot through the top <laughs> roof of your house on the banks of Plum Creek, that kind of thing. Right. So for a long time, I'm like, OK, I should be a grateful child this Christmas because I only got a piece of, you know, lint and some metal shards and therefore I can be as good as Laura. So that was like my M.O. as a kid. But then when I grew up, I'm like, oh, my gosh, how would Ma handle this? Like, would Ma be freaked out? It Would Ma tell the girls they can't walk to, you know, to school by themselves because a weird psycho clown is going to jump out of the bushes and that was like the scariest episode. She maybe should have thinking of that scary episode. Yes. That episode 
freaked me the heck out. You see the smoke and mirrors of it all, right? When you return to these books as an adult and be like, oh, when Ma was saying everything's fine and the panther can't get in, like she didn't know that. She was just saying that. (laughs) Well, see, but then the other thing was about risk mitigation. Like they totally understood, you know, we live in these woods with these things. And so therefore here's, you know, how to. And the funny part about this is that it got a little too close for me once. So where we used to live in New Hampshire, we live in Vermont now, but where we used to live in New Hampshire, there was a way to walk home from school. My kids could walk home from school taking a trail the whole way. And the first part of the trail was really easy, but the second part of the trail was a little overgrown and the kids would get lost. So when my older kid did it, it took him a really long time. He ended up in a cow pasture and he was lost and I had to go look for him. When my younger kid tried it, he was really lost for a really long time and I couldn't find him at all. And I was absolutely positive that he'd, I had worked myself into such a frenzy and I was positive he'd been eaten by a bear because, and this is not like an idle thing because where we lived in New Hampshire happens to be the same place where Ben Killam, this really well-known bear biologist, he releases a lot of bears in the area. So it was really common for us to see bears, like if not once a month, then, you know, more often than that. So I'm thinking, great, like I have not fully prepared my child for what to do when he encounters a bear. And I had a major fail, child eaten by bear. (laughs) What a gift. (laughs) I have a book called The Gift of Failure, and people are going to be like, yeah, well, she did it, and her kid got eaten by a bear. But Ma would have taught all the kids, you know, here's what you do. And, you know, it wasn't that she didn't let them do things. It was that they prepared them for the risk involved. And that's, and prepared them to problem solve. I mean, the problem solving you know, and that's what was most important to me. So when I let the kids do the trail on their own, I had done part of it with them. I taught them to listen for the road and listen for the water that's near the road, because that if you go towards that, if you're lost, you'll get back on the trail, you know, that kind of stuff. And so those sorts of thoughts about, you know, asking a stranger for help, or do you know what to do if you get lost in the airport? I mean, we've had those conversations, because as much as I don't want to think about my kid getting lost somewhere, I do want him to know what to do if he does. And so in that sense, I'm preparing my kids for the world as opposed to preparing the world for my kids. So I want to back up for a moment for people who are listening who maybe haven't read the book because we've read it. Most people have read it. It's mostly about bears, guys. It's mostly a bear (laughs) survival book, but there are some other things in it. The premise of the book is basically talking about how to let your children fail in a way that makes sense. Is that a fair statement? In a way that's productive. There you go. Productive is even better. Well, and I say all the time, you know, the title of the book is The Gift of Failure, which is kind of scary. I totally get that. But at the same time, it's not that I want kids to fail. It's that I want them to have a positive, adaptive response to failure. And that comes out of 20 years of teaching middle school and high school, where I got to watch firsthand when, you know, and I've taught everywhere from like super hoity-toity private schools to, you know, kids who have been kicked out of high school or, you know, I taught in a inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for kids for five years. So I've taught in all of these different places and I can see what happens when they aren't allowed to try on their own after making mistakes or experience the consequences of their mistakes. And essentially what happens when we overparent or coddle kids into 
learned helplessness, which is a real sort of term for essentially when kids just sort of learn that there's nothing they can do to change their environment. So why even bother to try? And that's when you get the kid who's just like, I've never learned how to do laundry. I can't do that. That's too hard. And, you know, they go boneless and scream and yell and that kind of thing. That's learned helplessness. We've been talking about learned helplessness on this podcast, basically every episode since the pandemic started, because there's so much more Mm -hmm. to be done around the house and so much more mess because everybody's home all the time. And I'm wondering about like letting your kid find his own way home through the woods. Like I definitely see the benefits of that. And what's hard about this moment is how do we fight against overprotectiveness when we're all on top of each other? all the time. Yeah, it's really hard. And actually, before I go into that, here's a cool animal model study of learned helplessness and the antidote to it. Love studies. Yeah. You're in Amy's happy place right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm oversimplifying. I'm mashing a couple of studies together. But picture you have two cages. And in these two cages, you have baby rats. There's one baby rat in one cage and one baby rat in another cage. And in those cages, those rats are exposed to a little shock, a pain sensation. And Only one of the rats has the ability to turn that shock off. But when that rat turns the shock off, it turns the shock off for both rats. So both rats are getting the same amount of pain, but only one has any sense of control over that pain. If you let those rats grow up, And then as adolescents, put them on an open sort of platform that delivers a shock from underneath, but nothing's confining them. The rat who had control as a baby will just jump off the plate, will understand that, oh, I can move and do something about this pain and make it stop. Whereas the rat who never had any control over the pain sensation will just sit there and take it forever, never assuming, assuming that there's nothing that rat can do and won't even explore the options. And What's really amazing about that is Martin Seligman at University of Pennsylvania, he's the father of positive psychology, he looked at the all the data on learned helplessness and found out that actually it's our default mode in our brain when exposed to long-term pain, frustration, to just sort of curl up in a ball, you know, metaphorically speaking, and just go helpless. The way to interrupt that cycle that we're all sort of our default mode is to give control back. So... That's how you train a kid out of learned helplessness is by giving them more control. That feeling of helplessness is a horrible thing. And if it's allowed to sort of keep going, it turns into this thing called a lack of self-efficacy. And a lack of self-efficacy is when a kid doesn't feel like they have any ability to take an action that will change the world around them. And that's what I end up with a lot of the time when I was working at the rehab is kids who were in really traumatic environments and nothing they could do. They were powerless to stop the abuse or the drug abuse in their home or whatever it was. So they just learn why bother? You know, the only possible way for me to go and deal with this is to escape by numbing myself out with drugs and alcohol, as opposed to trying to change something because I have no power to change things. So learned helplessness evolves into a very negative and damaging sort of state for kids where they don't, you know, it's that feeling of, you know, this COVID thing is so horrible. Why bother? Now, in this COVID thing, if you want to avoid that, it's give kids more options, gives kids more autonomy. And, you know, I'm not talking about like free reign over everything. I'm talking about, you know, in the same mode that you, you know, when it's cold outside and a little kid, you want a little kid to wear a hat, you don't say, do you want to wear a hat? Because we're, we know what they're going to say. We say, would you like to wear the red hat or the blue hat? And that's giving them some choice 
within certain parameters is how you sort of increase buy-in and give kids the feeling like they're not helpless, that they do have the ability to make choices that'll make them happier and change the world around them. So more autonomy is really the answer to, and more a little more control. If you're the kind of parent that... I don't know, makes your kid clean their room constantly, this would be a really, really good time to reassess that. And when you think about how few places kids have control over their environment, their rooms sometimes are the only place where they can exert any control. And when people are like, yeah, but how do I get them to keep their room clean? And I'm like, I don't really understand why you're so hung up on doing that because we're going to have to give kids some autonomy and control back somewhere. So why not pick some low stakes places to allow kids to have their own environment, to have, make their own choices about their environment, their hair, their whatever. And now is a really good time to start thinking more about how you can give kids more choices and, and more autonomy. That's so interesting because my I have a particularly messy kid and I'm already thinking like when this kid goes to college, like the worst roommate. So I have to get this kid mm-hmm. to take ownership and being less messy and whatever, but solving for the future freshman roommate. My cajoling isn't going to right isn't going to change that necessarily. Right. Well, what you're teaching your kid to do is to clean the room to make mom happy, not clean the room to make the kid happy. So and, you know, just this is purely anecdotal evidence, but I can tell you that my sister and I were slobs, mostly in retaliation to a very precise father. My dad is amazing, but he was also a designer and he liked things a certain way. Like we weren't allowed to put holes in our walls to hang posters and stuff like that. Things had to be like framed and hung up and stuff like that. And all of our walls were white. And so the minute I moved out of that house, I'm like color on every wall. And so, but my sister and I actually grew up to be very clean and neat and tidy and very organized people. But, you know, I was never cleaning my room for me. I was cleaning my room for my parents, which meant I just stuffed it all in my closet and hope that they wouldn't open the door or under the bed. On the flip side, I was extremely messy. And my mom was the one who was like, I need order, 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 order for her own reasons of having grown up in like a two family house that had 23 people living in it. (laughs) And she wanted order. And I was like, this is unimportant and shallow. And I never learned to be neat. And I'm still messy. And so I think we always say this on the podcast. Mm -hmm. It's not really an issue of whether you should follow these rules because you read it in a book. Mm -hmm. It's whether you should follow this because it actually makes sense. And like, Mm -hmm. you can go 20 rounds a day with your kid who is disorganized about how they have to be more organized. But the problem is it doesn't actually work. If it worked, it would be worth trying. Right. Well, and it gets in the middle and it messes with your relationship. I mean, there are certain, also it has to do with your family priorities. So this one question I get all the time, my kid doesn't want to practice piano or whatever the thing is. Can I let him quit? And that was a really hard question for me for a long time until I thought about it from in terms of, you know, your family priorities. And in our family, we're not a hugely musical family. So it was my wonderful idea. The neighbor up the street had a piano that they were getting rid of because their kids had moved out. And luckily, their house was uphill from our house. And so we rolled the piano down to my house and we put it in the house. And I'm like, great. Studies show kids who have, you know, piano lessons are better at math. So definitely my kid has to learn how to play piano. And it became our battleground. It was, we fought about it constantly. And he didn't want to practice. And I, and it just, it became this thing. And we got in this rut of arguing about the piano every day. And so finally, I'm like, you really want to quit? He said, yes, I really want to quit. And we rolled, we found another sucker neighbor down the street and we rolled it down the hill to their house. And what's really interesting about that is 
both of my kids came back to music on their own. My older son who rejected the piano actually learned how to play guitar on his own by watching YouTube and by using a program called Jamplay. And my very, very non-musical son now produces electronic music and has studied music theory on his own. So it was a really interesting moment for me to look back and realize, you know, we got to preserve our relationship in a really important way and get rid of the thing that was sort of messing with our relationship. And I got to show him, I got to show my kid that I really respected his wishes, but that was over something that was a low priority item for us. You know, it it may not be the same in your house. You may have other, you know, music may be incredibly important to you. I know a, a friend of mine, her rule in her house is you will play a musical instrument and take lessons. You can change it up every six weeks if you want, but you will play a musical instrument. So, and most of the time her kids figure out that it's harder to start a new one than to stick with the old one. So in her house, that's a priority and I respect that. And that, you know, we just had different priorities in our house. On the podcast, we call this the triangle, top of the triangle, like what's at the top. And if harmonious home is at the top of your triangle, it may mean they don't play piano. If producing exceptional children is the top of your triangle it harmonious home probably has to come second to that it's a choice you can make but you should know what your triangle looks like because you should be making those choices yeah on purpose and not just being like why am i fighting with an eight-year-old about the bass clarinet when this will play no role in their lives for us it was very much communication that was like There were a few non-negotiables, like sleep is a non-negotiable in our house and open communication, open and honest communication. And I was simply not willing to mess with that. So there have been times when I have just said, this is a battle I'm not willing to fight simply because it will get in the way of our my kids trust in me or our ability to have a conversation. And that does not mean that, you know, I never, ever get my kid mad because I'm afraid it's going to mess with communication. But I'm always going to prioritize, you know, our ability to have a relationship and, and communicate over, for example, practicing the piano. I think this is a good time to take a break. When we come back, I have another pandemic parenting question for you, Jess, that I really hope that you can help me with because I need help. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. 
Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so Jess, here's what's happening in my house on the regular, and I suspect other places too, is you you talk a lot in the book in the gift of failure about, you know, not rescuing our kids, whether it's a signed test they forgot or a soccer cleat they forgot that we don't rescue them because the gift of them having to figure out how to tell the coach they forgot one of their cleats is worthy, right? Mm -hmm. In these current moments, you know, this at-home learning is so stressful. One of my kids says that like computer science was his worst class and now every class is computer science. Oh man, yeah, my kid just said that he would prefer to have to get up really early and go to school every day than have to do this Zoom thing. And that's when I understood fully for him how horrible this is for him. Right, it's stressful. And so like in the moments where say my kid is like, I'm supposed to be in homeroom and the Wi-Fi isn't working or like the Zoom is this or the printer's jammed or like these are um, like secondary you know, problems, right? It's not really about the academics. Right. Well, no, but it's getting in the way. And it is, of course, it's like my husband and I are both home working right now. But of course, I'm the one when the printer's jammed, who are you going to get? You're going to get mom. And so I feel like I'm constantly like 15% available and on call in case somebody has a, a technical issue. Yeah, absolutely. Which to them in the moment is a five alarm fire. Yeah. I'm not sure how to handle those in the realm of autonomy and encouraging them to solve problems. Yeah, it's definitely hard. I mean, I have been and my husband, actually, we're all for the most part, we're working at home. My husband's a physician. He's actually in the hospital this week. But for the most part, we're all home. And I've been helping with schoolwork more than I ever had before, mainly because there isn't a teacher right there to walk over to or, you know, I definitely encourage him to, you know, my so I say him, I have two kids, one is in college right now, and he's 21, about to be 22. And then I have a 16 year old about to turn 17, who's a junior in high school. And for the high school kid, you know, there just isn't the same opportunity to turn to a friend and say, could you help me with this? And You can text the friend or you can just say, could you come help me with this? And what's been interesting is this, the helping right now has to do with a lot of problem solving. So instead of just running in and like having to, you know, fix the Wi-Fi and run interference and send the emails and explain, you know, here's what's happening at home, you know, helping the kid understand the best way to reach the teacher and let the teacher know that the Wi-Fi is down. These are really important. The notes that you can send that, you know, Helping your kid, this is actually even more important right now. It is not our job to reteach all of Algebra 1 so the kid can do, you know, the homework, the Algebra homework. It is our job to help our kid express to the teacher that this part of the homework was beyond their capability. Because 
homework especially is information for the teacher that's you know as a teacher i would so much rather have a blank homework page with a note from the kids saying here's what i couldn't figure out here's what i could figure out i couldn't get to the answer but here's the parts i understood and the parts i didn't i would so rather have that than homework that's complete and perfect yet clearly accomplished through parents' (laughs) interference. You know, one of my math teacher colleagues used to say, you know, it's amazing the number of times I get homework from this one kid whose father is a math professor where, you know, it's accomplished using trigonometry and which is so curious because I haven't taught any (laughs) trigonometry yet. This is the Pinewood Derby. You're like, wow, that car is pretty advanced for a (laughs) five-year-old. Exactly. Well, it's funny you say that, actually. My father was such a good teacher of this for me anyway, because my dad actually was a soapbox derby champion and he and his dad built soapbox derby cars together. And my dad says that the reason he showed up for the first day of industrial design school with a leg up on everyone is he knew through trial and error and through being taught how to use tools. And I was taught that as a kid, too. And, you know, one of the coolest things I got to hear my dad say recently was that one of his proudest accomplishments as a parent is knowing that his kids can fix just about anything or at least figure out how to fix just about anything. And that also would be my greatest wish for my kids is to be really great problem solvers. And so it's less important that we fix whatever the Wi-Fi problem or the printer problem in that moment than we figure out how to have a kid who can fix it themselves next time. Because otherwise, you're just going to have to fix the printer every time. I mean, so if you could take an extra 10 minutes right now to say, calm down, your teacher's not going to freak out. Let's take this opportunity and think about what this is. So when school was completely remote last semester in the spring, I did a lot of interviews where I was talking about the opportunities inherent in this period of time when school wasn't really happening in the normal sense. And the opportunities are to find out what really matters to your kid and then really try to foster anything you can foster around that interest because for the first time ever for a lot of kids they were not overscheduled suddenly had they had the time to get bored and find out what they were really interested in or to start a project or to do my son said oh my gosh I'm getting so much work done now that school is not in the way and what he was working on was his goal we do set goals around here and he had a goal was to create his first EP his first you know instead of a single to create an entire album album of work that had some cohesive narrative to it. And that was when he said, I'm getting a lot of work done. That's what he was talking about. And so to find ways to make learning relevant for our kids, this is that opportunity because we know our kids better than just about anyone. And if they're having trouble with fractions, then just teaching them about fractions, that's good, but helping them understand how fractions are actually relevant to the everyday things we do in life. And the example I've been giving a lot recently is with a young kid. If, you know, the promise is that we're going to make pancakes in the morning, hide the cup measure, the one cup measure, but have the one third, one quarter, and one half cup measure available and say, look, we have to make these pancakes, but I don't know where the cup measure is. So what? how can we problem solve to fix this? And that's an incredibly useful way to say, to kids here, you know, this isn't just abstract knowledge. This is something that will actually apply in your life. And learning that is relevant and learning that kids are emotionally engaged in, that's where the deepest learning happens. And I won't go into a big discussion of like how that happens in the brain, but essentially 
you know, stuff gets committed to long-term memory through a process called encoding, and that happens when kids are emotionally involved or when kids feel that the learning is relevant to them as opposed to just some abstract thing they have to regurgitate um, because you said so or because a teacher said so. So they're there with us, and we're able to help them make those connections. One of the things we keep coming back to on the podcast as we talk about this time is mm-hmm. don't miss the lessons of the pandemic. And I think that that's so crucial for people. Similarly, I have a kid who struggles a lot in school and the remote learning has been incredibly frustrating for, mm-hmm. but is very physical. And I mean, he set a goal for himself. I didn't even really know what was going on. He has like a little air track thing. It's like a tumbling mat. And he decided he was going to learn to do a front flip on it. And he just like kept falling, kept falling, kept falling and learned to do a front flip in the backyard. Yeah. But I wasn't even facilitating that experience. He set that for himself because he had an hour a day to fill where I wasn't allowing him to be on screens and yeah. that pent up frustration. And my lesson is unstructured downtime that I am not the cruise director of leads to good things. Well, and that's you're mentioning something really important. And what you just described is something called self-directed executive function, which is I wrote an article about this, I think, for The Atlantic called about downtime, free play being the best kind of play, mainly because when we tell them, look, here's your assignment and here are the things you need to do to finish it. That's us directing their efforts. If a kid wants to, you know, learn how to do a front flip or build a treehouse, for the most part, you just can't walk out there and do it, right? There are some intermediate steps you have to figure out along the way, especially, you know, building something you have to, where are you going to get the materials? What do you need? How are you got to do some planning? So that coming up with a big goal and then figuring out the smaller goals you have to do along the way to get there. That's called self-directed executive function. And this is something that I teach a lot in the rehab classroom. I used to play for them a film, a short documentary made by REI called Follow Through. And it's starring, it's on YouTube. It's like 15 minutes and it's starring a former student of mine who wanted, she's now a professional skier and mountaineer, and she wanted to ski 40, these shoots in the Wasatch Range in Utah, called the shooting gallery. And not only did she have to figure out which things she had to do to get there, she had to figure out along the way which things she had to postpone or decide not to do because they were simply the risk was too high for her. So this little video called follow through helps me teach kids about coming up with a huge goal, whether and often in my classroom, it's like, I want to be a rap star. Or for one kid, he said one time he wanted to work on an oil rig. And he's like, like my uncle, he works on an oil rig. And I'm like, fantastic. Let's come up with the smaller goals you have to achieve in order to get to that big goal. Obviously, the first one being you have to stay sober. But those small goals, giving kids the room to come up with the little goals on the way to the big goal, that's an incredibly important part of building uh, one of the aspects of executive function that they just don't get to do when they're overscheduled, when we're constantly telling them what they have to do and how to get there, or being what the research calls a directive parent. Those are the kids, not only do they not build executive function, direct, self-directed executive function, kids who are raised by highly directive parents are a lot less likely to be able to complete tasks that are frustrating for them because those kids don't build that muscle of, oh, this is what frustration feels like. Okay, I can handle it. I can take a breath. I can reread the instructions. I can think about it a new way and push through to the end. And the reason that's relevant is that some of the most powerful teaching tools your kids' teachers have 
are one of them is this thing called desirable difficulties and desirable difficulties requires kids to push through when they feel a little bit of frustration and figure out how to get how to finish that task and kids who can't be frustrated can't benefit from desirable difficulties so there's so many benefits to letting kids do exactly what you're talking about is to get bored figure out make a goal figure out the goal themselves and you can help them when they're littler. You're like their training wheels when they're littler, but there's a reason training wheels have a little bolt on them that allow you to raise the training wheels over time. So the bike gets tippier and tippier. You're not supposed to be there constantly all the time until they're 18. And then magically they go out the door and they know how to do everything and they're capable because that's just not how it works. I'm thinking about all the parents who are listening because we've communicated with a lot of them who were like my seven-year-old, like, turns the computer off, like sits there and draws, like is not motivated by, and it's not the teacher's fault. I mean, be very careful to say, I'm not blaming the teacher in this equation, but the completely subpar situation that we're forced into, if this hybrid at home learning that the kid just won't do it because they can't do it really. How do we get them motivated to do that sort of thing? And not just seven year, I mean, 12 year olds. I got a couple of those in my house not doing it either. And it's boring. How do we get them to want to do it? Absolutely. And there's a big difference between the won't and the can't. And the can't question, here's, you know, I constantly ask parents to rethink the difference between won't and can't for their kids because parents are often quick to jump to can't simply because it... Uh, you know, takes the blame away and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But we often really underestimate our own kids, mainly because it's so hard for us to see our own kids, you know, frustrated or feeling like they're not able or capable or whatever. So just think I constantly am sort of sticking, asking parents to just stick their toe over the line of where they think their kids' ability level is. There's great research in education on When you take two groups of kids that are both just perfectly average kids and you put them in a classroom, but you tell the teacher that one of the groups is gifted, the when the teacher expects kids to be at an elevated level, the kids will rise to maybe not. They won't all of a sudden all be gifted, but they will raise their performance to meet expectations to a certain degree. And that happens with all kids. And I'm talking about, you know, kids with special needs, kids with who have, you know, if your kids has some sort of IEP. Let's just all try to expect just a tiny bit more of our kids. And when you do that, the can't becomes a won't, and then we can learn how to problem solve. But when you're in the can't place, there is no problem solving other than going out there and saying, you know, my kid needs therapy or extra help or whatever. But let's try to stay in the won't. And the won't is a lot more productive simply because then at that point, we have the ability to sort of do a bit of bargaining. But to do a bit of bargaining with kids, you need to know what really, really matters to them. And so if their goal is, and this, you know, if their goal is to be able to, this is a hard time because there's not a lot of positive things to hold out there as a reward for them, an internally driven reward for them. I'm not talking about, you know, if you do your homework, you'll get $10 because that's an extrinsic reward and those do not work. I think that's a really important point to make is that, When we reward kids with like money for grades or threats if they don't get good grades or sticker charts, that kind of thing, that actually what we do is undermine their long-term motivation. 
So it works in the short term, but it's super tricky. It does not work in the long term. And it not only undermines motivation, it undermines creativity. So we have to figure out some way to get the kid invested in the thing for the sake of the thing itself. And if that means that they're working towards simply being done with chemistry or, you know, being able to study something else that they want to study next year or, you know, something as simple as, you know, talking to your kid about what they want to be when they get big. And the problem is during this is that so little seems to matter because there's no, there's a lot fewer immediate consequences for not doing work because there's a lot more understanding right now that there are a lot, kids have a lot of reasons why they can't get the work done. And teachers are a lot more tolerant, which is great, especially for kids that, you know, have really bad Wi-Fi or whatever the problem is. But it's going to be a lot harder right now to come up with really good consequences for not doing whatever it is you're trying to get your stuff, your kid to do. But as much as we can, try to make the consequences follow directly, like be natural consequences for not doing something. So if your kid just will not open the laptop and will not engage with the material, then the best possible thing you can do is not punish the kid for not doing it, not just let the F happen, but say, okay, you're going to have to arrange the meeting where we sit with our masks on in our little, you know, distancing sort of situation where we meet with your teacher and we talk together and we problem solve. And I've had to run, not run because the kid runs them, but I've had to help facilitate a bunch of these meetings where, you know, the natural consequence of not engaging in school is having to have a conversation with your teacher. And it, you know, it brings another person in so that it's not just you and your kid beating your heads together. So try to think about what's the natural consequence of your kid not engaging in school and the easiest thing to put out there is how can we help you we're not going to solve this problem for you but how can we help you and in order to do that you're going to have to hold a meeting and we'll be there to support you but it's your meeting to run they hate doing it by the way i feel like this is something for us that is happening yeah three times a week at our house too and that's something that you know, I try to remind people of that we have a Tuesday that goes pretty well. Then Wednesday is a hot mess. Like we can't get stuff done. And wait, just because Wednesday is at home, right? And Tuesday is at school. Well, maybe or maybe just because like the Wi-Fi was bad and or the kid just wasn't having a bad day, didn't sleep well the night before. And so we try to a couple times a week kind of have a little family meeting. How is this going? Well, mom, you're yelling a lot all day during school. I'm like, you're not wrong. I could reset that a little bit. But one of the reasons I'm yelling is because you are not keeping to your schedule. So I feel like I'm constantly having to be like, it's 937. You have to finish that and go to the next thing. So maybe we both need to solve this problem together. You need to keep to your schedule and I need to try to stop running it. But I think especially during remote learning, these are not problems you're solving once. This is something you have to solve weekly and sometimes five times a week. Like, how's it going? What's working? What's not working? And I would argue that what you're doing, this meeting, this conversation is so much more important than the learning that should be happening, like the math problems that he didn't do because the laptop was closed. So over the summer, I do a lot of speaking, but obviously speaking in person got canceled. And so a whole bunch of us parenting educators decided to do a series this summer called Parenting in Place Masterclass. And so it was really fun getting to watch all these people I really respect. I got to go to all of their talks, which normally I don't get to do because I'm on the road too. 
And over and over and over again, everyone kept stressing. Now is a time to really emphasize the social emotional learning, the ability to talk, the ability to find the words and express emotions about how you're feeling about this. That needs to be prioritized right now over practicing math facts because this is incredibly stressful for kids. They're not getting their social time. I mean, my kid, since March, he has seen one friend once for an hour and it was distanced. So, you know, until school started. And for him, he's in a hybrid model. So he gets to see some of his friends, you know, two days a week. But that loss is big. And that loss, and one of the things that we also mentioned earlier is that, you know, you have to prioritize your family harmony sometimes over fighting over that thing one more time. And it's like wheeling the piano down the road. I'm so happy to hear that you're having conversations that are more relaxed, that you take time when you're not angry. I mean, that's the other big thing. Take time when you're not freaking out in the moment to talk about these things. And open yourself up to say, what am I doing wrong too, is incredibly important. How can I support you more in being engaged in school? Because what we're doing right now is not working and it's upsetting to me and it's upsetting to you. And the one thing I will not sacrifice is our relationship. So how can we work together to make this better? If that means we have a conversation with your teacher if that means that you get a break at a certain point, you know, you get like a get out of jail free card kind of thing just for a 10 minute run around the house outside while class is going on, that kind of thing. Just your kid knowing that you're that engaged in their in your relationship and you're wanting to help them and asking them what might be helpful to them is huge because we don't, if you think about it, how often do you turn to your kid and say, you know, I see that you don't want to, you know, do your work for school. How can I help you? Usually we just say, do it. And asking them is a huge part of getting buy-in from your kid on any solutions that hopefully they come up with. So I think what you're doing is absolutely on target. Okay, guys, you just heard it. Nationally recognized parenting expert, <laughs> Jess Leahy, says I'm awesome. I think I've achieved nirvana. Can you call my kids, Jess, and let them know this? Because they don't seem to agree. Whatever it is we can do to continue moving our relationship into a good direction, whatever we can do to help our kids gain a little bit more control by saying, how can we support you? That's going to give them feelings of self-efficacy. That's going to give them, that's going to banish some of that learned helplessness. And it's going to give them a tiny bit of control in an environment where we're all feeling like we have no control. And that's making a lot of us feel really helpless right now. And that's, you know, the antidote to that, again, is granting some control back. Nailed it. This was so helpful, wasn't it? I feel like I got so much out of this conversation. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad. Jess, tell us about you, like where we can find you and your books and your work and everything. Everything is at jessicalahey.com. I'm most active on Twitter, mainly because that's where all the teachers are, by the way. So as a profession, teachers are the largest users of Twitter. I follow about 12,000 teachers on Twitter. It's a really cool place if you're in education. A lot of support right now for teachers helping other teachers. And, you know, for parents, I just want to remind you, doing online learning, doing remote teaching is something that people actually go to school for. And so expecting that just after one summer, suddenly teachers would be good at it. Not realistic. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) It's not a good place to be. No, it's not realistic at all. So I'm at Twitter at Jess Leahy and JessicaLahey.com. And I have a new book coming out in April that I'm super excited about. And there's information at JessicaLahey.com about that book. Will you tell us a little bit about it? Or is it, it's still under wraps? Yeah, no, no, no. I'm so excited. So I 
as I said, taught in the rehab for a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents for five years. And part of that was part of my own recovery. I have almost seven years of recovery from as I'm an alcoholic and I'm raising two kids for whom addiction is a big part of their family story. I mean, you know, we have a lot of relatives in our family tree is like just you, there's a lot of red dots for the genetic predisposition for drug and alcohol abuse. So I needed to understand, I needed someone to go through all of the research, the most, you know, everything that's out there, like not just the big things about, you know, trauma and stuff like that, but like, does it help? You know, what's the role of sleep? What's the role of having a pet in the house? What's the role, you know, all of these things, what role do they play in the part that I can control about substance abuse? And also what should schools, what's sort of the best practices for schools when it comes to substance abuse prevention? And that book didn't really exist. And so I wrote it. And it's called The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. And it's, you know, understanding that there's only so much we can do. I try to think about substance abuse prevention as sort of scales. And the more risk a kid has, the more protections we're going to have to heap on them. So I identify all the risks that I can and then as many protections as we can. And that'll be out in April. I can't wait to read that book. That sounds amazing. I'm, it ended up being much more of a memoir than I anticipated, which is scary, but I'm really excited for people to read it. Thanks so much for being with us. We will put links to Gift of Failure. We will put links to where to get your new book. And so people can find you all over the interwebs after they've listened to you and thought that lady sounds smart. Thanks, Jess. <laughs> Thank you so much, you guys. And remember, this is, you know, just remember, your kids are probably going to be fine. And these everyday emergencies is not, these are not how you judge your parenting. Look long-term, process, not product. Focus more on the process, less on the product, and focus more on, you know, do I want to fix it right now or do I want to have a kid who can do it himself next time? And we'll all get through this a little bit more sane. And the big takeaway, your child was likely not eaten by a bear. Probably not. Although I can't guarantee that. All works out. <laughs> no, we don't <laughs> offer guarantees. Come on. It's a parents' podcast. Good odds. The odds are good. Thanks so much, Jess. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? 
That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it.